And when I stopped, I knew I was right out in the open. Now they were going to shoot me again. And I was hoping they would get a nice, clean shot through my head. I wanted out of this hell. And that seemed to be the only way to get out of it is for somebody to, to kill me. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. The Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Uh, welcome, and thank you for joining us for another educational episode of Stigma-Free Vet Zone. Today, we are with uh, Mark Foreman, who served as a Navy corpsman with the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines in Vietnam in 1968. And Mark was severely wounded and spent eight months in a body cast at Bethesda Naval Hospital before receiving his medical discharge. So uh, Mark would go on to face many challenges, both physical, psychological, and spiritual, in response to his military experience. And he is with us here today to share some of that educational experience. So we are going to sail down to Milwaukee and welcome Mark Foreman. Mark, welcome to our program. Thank you. Really, it's, um, it's a wonderful opportunity that you're giving to us veterans who joined the military when we were about 18 years old and hoping that we would be playing a a historical place in history to uh, save democracy and freedom. You want me to tell you about uh, where I grew up? Uh, Yeah, why don't we start off, Mark? Just tell us a little bit about your your life as a child, where you grew up, your general interest, your family, religion, that sort of thing, before we get on to the military career. Okay, well, I I grew up in in Ames, Iowa, where Iowa State University is. Uh, My dad was a plumber, and my mother was a stay-at-home housewife and took care of us kids. Um. It was almost like a leave it to beaver like existence um, for me. I I wasn't very academic when I was in school. I was very physical. I just wanted to spend all my time out in the woods or riding my bike, uh, something real physical. And by the time I got into high school, which was in 1963, I was a, a sophomore in high school. Um, we were starting to hear on the news about uh, the Vietnam War. And then by the time I graduated from high school in 1966, um, the war had really, really started um, getting serious. I mean, there were uh, quite a few Americans being killed over there every week. Now, I wasn't academic, um, you know, like I just said earlier, and uh, when President Johnson 
um, started talking about a draft, I got pretty concerned um, in 1966 when I was getting ready to graduate from high school or barely graduate from high school. Uh, my parents, my, my dad had been in the Navy in the, during the Second World War. He never saw combat of any kind. He never left the continental United States. But he, he believed that it was important to serve your country. And um, so he, he sort of encouraged me, not real enthusiastically, but encouraged me to think about um, joining the military. But I think he was concerned that the, that the war was getting real serious and a lot of people were being killed. Um, so when I was a senior in high school and I was hearing on the national news uh, every night about how the war kept uh, getting more and more heated. Um, and then uh, President Johnson started talking about drafting um, us when we got out of high school if we weren't planning to go to college. And I was not college material at that time. I was too immature. So um, I decided I had, I had better join the Navy, thinking the Navy would be a whole lot safer than the Marines or the Army. So shortly after high school, I did. I joined the Navy and um, went out to um, San Diego at the Naval Training Center and spent uh, three months uh, in basic training. And before we ended the right about a week before basic training ended, uh, my commanding officer came to me and and asked what I wanted to do while I was in the Navy. Um, and I told him that I, I would like to be a corpsman. And a corpsman is the same as a medic in the Army. Um, only I believe that to become a corpsman, I would be working in a hospital uh, somewhere around the world. And uh, so after graduating from core school, which that was two months of intense training um, out at, at Balboa Naval Hospital, and I, I really loved um, studying medicine. And I started actually thinking that maybe I could become a doctor someday. So uh, a week before we graduated from uh, core school training, the commanding officer there at Balboa Naval Hospital called all 200 of us were being trained, um, called us into an auditorium and explained to us that we would be going to Vietnam with the Grunt Marines. And I had no idea at that time that the Marines were actually part of the Navy. And here I was, I was going to be going to, into the Vietnam War with the Marines. So I had to psychologically accept that I was going to be going to war. Now, I was thinking about going to Canada instead, but because my parents were both God and country, and I'd signed on the bottom line, and I needed to do my duty, 
no matter what. I did psych myself up uh, to just accept that I was I was going to be going to Vietnam and and with the Marines. We are visiting well, with uh, former Navy Corpsman Mark Foreman. Mark, this is really uh, quite a point in your your introduction to the war and the military that shift from thinking that you would be somewhere safe to now having to ch- psychologically change your mind and understanding that you were actually crossing that veil and going into this place where you could actually be killed uh, and you'd be a, a completely different understanding than what you had before when you decided simply to join the Navy. You know, it, it felt like I was on a huge ocean wave and it was so big that I just had to try to ride the wave and the wave was leading me to Vietnam and there was a part of me actually that and I suppose it's because of my um, not very mature uh, 18 year old brain that I actually thought, well, this is going to give me the opportunity to actually save lives. I really love the idea of being in a position where I could actually save lives, you know, stop their bleeding, keep them breathing. Um, So right before I got my, well, after I got my orders that I was going to be going to Vietnam, I was sent to a field medical training school, which was to assimilate war conditions. And we spent the first two days, we, there were 30 of us going through the uh, field medical training school. uh, We were one class. And um, the first two days at that school, we sat in a dark room watching film footage that was taken during the Korean War of US um, soldiers who had been seriously wounded. Uh, We were watching these these films of how, you know, I remember one of the the Marines that they were working on in the film, uh, half of his face was blown off. And then there were others with their legs blown off. they, they showed us all kinds of injuries that, that um, <clears throat> we would be witnessing when we get to Vietnam. And I thought it was rather miraculous how they could take a human body, the doctors could take a human body that had been blown up so badly and actually keep them alive and um, do bone transplants and all kinds of things. It, it was it was rather fascinating to me at the time. What they couldn't show us in those films was how much pain these soldiers were in, and they they didn't um, even they didn't get into what happened to them when they got out of the hospital. So that was something I would learn myself firsthand. Um, So once I graduated from uh, field medical school, um, then I got orders to go to Vietnam and I arrived in uh, Da Nang on uh, March 30th, 1968. And when I got off the plane, there was a squad 
kind of squad leader waiting for me. There were about 10 um, Marines waiting for me. And they took me across the tarmac uh, to the barracks that we were gonna be staying in for a couple of days before they sent us out into the field. And during those two days, they called it orientation time. Two days of orientation, it was um, taking us, walking us around the outskirts of Da Nang um, and seeing where buildings had just recently been rocketed and many Marines were killed inside of those buildings. And I, I was starting to develop a sense of, holy cow, I mean, these were some of the best trained Marines we had, and they just happened to be in a building that a rocket landed on, and now they're all dead. And so the, the squad leader actually emphasized to us that, yes, we could be dead any moment, but we do not, you've got to just accept that because if you get too emotionally upset, then you can't do your job efficiently. So psychologically, right away, the first few days in Vietnam, um, I was developing this, this kind of numb feeling about, my goodness, I could be dead any moment. And, but I'm over here to perform a job that I was trained for, and that's all there is to it. So after two days of orientation, then our, our squad leader took us out into the bush, and we spent the next couple of weeks walking through small villages, through uh, rice paddies, up into the jungle-covered mountains. And every day we would get sniper fire, not a whole lot, but periodically get sniper fire, but they never hit any of us. But, you know, my mind was always racing that if they hit one of us, that's when I go to work, you know, to stop their bleeding, keep them breathing. So after two weeks of this, um, you know, being with this one squad of 10, ten Marines, uh, we joined up with another squad uh, that had about 10 or 15 Marines in it. And this other squad had been in Vietnam quite a bit longer than, than our squad. Our squad that I first joined, we're all a bunch of newbies. We, we just got into country. But this other squad had been in a couple of uh, uh, firefights. And there was a corpsman, another corpsman in that squad that I got to know pretty well while I was there. His name was Harry Bowman. And his, his squad really respected him because they'd been through a couple of firefights together and apparently he performed very well. And so he became my role model, which was really nice because he was, he was a very bright guy, uh, very calm, had a great sense of humor. And um, we would sit and talk, um, you know, when we were, you know, camping or getting ready to go to, to sleep at night on the ground somewhere in Vietnam. So another, another few weeks went by and I'd gotten to know Harry um, pretty well and I, I really enjoyed his company. We, we could talk about a lot of things. But a couple of weeks went by and we were, we were up on the side of a mountain looking down at a, a valley. There was nothing going on. We, 
we apparently didn't seem to be in an area where we needed to be concerned that there were Vietnamese out there that wanted to kill us. However, when we were we were just sitting up real high, probably a thousand feet up on a on a mountain, looking down at this magnificent landscape, uh, rice paddies below and and Vietnamese families working in the rice paddies with their wa water buffalo. So it was a beautiful afternoon, um, and all of a sudden there was machine gun fire down um, in in the middle of the valley probably a, a thousand, two thousand feet away from us. Um, but there was machine gun fire and it just escalated and there was a full battle going on um, down in this small area of trees. And so we were up above looking down and hearing all this uh, and rockets and grenades and uh, they were, it was quite a battle going on down there. And okay, so the the they sent in the U.S. sent in two jets and dropped two 500-pound bombs in this small area where our troops were fighting off another, you know, Vietnamese. And I'm sure everyone down there was killed. Um, they just about completely leveled those trees. And I had this horrible feeling that we, our guys were killing our guys. And it really, really upset me. Um, I was really pissed. So the, later that day, when it started getting dark, Doc Bowman and I just um, put our ponchos down and, and laid down getting ready to go to sleep. It was, it was getting dark. About 20 minutes after we'd laid down, we heard a loud, uh, loud explosions uh, not very far from us and a huge bright flash. We, um, but that was all there was. And then, and then I started hearing moaning, a lot of deep moaning. And I knew some of our guys were, were injured. And it was pitch black now. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. I made my way up the, the mountain a ways more, going in the direction of the moans. And I came across a Marine who was blown into some bushes. And like I said, it's pitch black. I cannot see him. I can only hear him moaning in front of me. I asked him um, uh, where he got hit. And he said, all over, Doc, all over. And so because I couldn't see where the blood was, I started feeling at the top of his head, feeling my way down his, his face and found some, a big glob of blood on his left cheek. I put a battle dressing over it and then I tore his shirt open and found six sucking chest wounds. Sucking chest wounds are when shrapnel uh, from a grenade or some kind of explosion um, goes into your chest into your lungs and when you breathe in the air goes out through the holes so i had to get those holes plugged up real fast we had uh, vaseline gauze bandages uh, in my bag or i had them in my bag and i covered up all eight holes with that and um, 
that I felt he was ready to be moved out of there. Um, one of the other Marines uh, grabbed his legs and I grabbed his arms and we carried him over to a Jeep and put him in the Jeep and started heading down the mountain to go down to a landing pad where um, um, a doctor would be called in to come and take care of him. Well, on the way down the mountain, um, a Marine who was wounded uh, stopped breathing and um, he, yeah, he couldn't breathe and his heart stopped. So I had to do closed cardiac massage on his heart to keep his heart pumping. And I also had to give him a tracheotomy, which is um, making a slit right below the Adam's apple um, into the pharynx. Um, and uh, I uh, put a ballpoint pen, took a ballpoint pen apart, stuck it in, his, in, in the hole into his pharynx and started breathing into his lungs. So the Jeep kept going down. We finally got to the bottom of the mountain where the landing pad was and um, got him out of, the, out of the Jeep, laid him on the ground. And um, I mean, I, they did not train us to diagnose death. And so I just kept doing what I, what I could do until the darn doctor got there, which was three hours later. I didn't stop working on him for those three hours. And the doc got there, the helicopter came, the doc came over and checked him out and told me that he'd been dead for a couple of hours. That was my first experience with working on um, a Marine who was shot. Mark, let, let me um, interrupt uh, politely for, for just a, a moment and just remind our audience and remind myself, you're a 20-year-old medic with a couple of months of training in the complete dark, in a jungle, in a Jeep, going down a hill, trying to keep this man alive, performing tracheotomies, performing uh, closed heart massage. Uh, that's an extraordinary thing to ask of a 20-year-old. And, and I don't expect you to respond, but I, I just want to remind our audience what the, where this is taking place. You know, I said a little bit earlier that I was starting to feel numb as if I had no emotions. When I was working on him, all I knew is that I needed to stop the bleeding and keep him breathing. That's all I, I, I had been trained to do. And so I was doing my best to, to keep him breathing, keep his heart you know, pumping. And uh, I, I'm sure I was emotionally involved in some level, but I just felt like I was working on a, a piece of hamburger. I really did. That hamburger is the wrong analogy to make, but, but I, I was working on a guy who was horribly blown up. And I mean, his eye was out, uh, was blown out. And it, it, was, it was a bloody mess. And, and, but I was, yeah, I was 20 years old. I was I was just doing what I was trained to do, and what else are you going to do? Would, would it be um, fair to say that you really have to shut down your emotions to do this, or you wouldn't be able to do it? I mean, yes. it, it would only make sense. I think the difference might be, maybe you can clarify this, is that you're not aware that you're shutting down your emotions. You're just no, I was not aware. 
I wasn't aware. In fact, I, I remember feeling very confident and competent that I could save this guy's life, you know, and I was doing what I, what I knew and had to do, but he was too far gone, you know? So I can, now after that incident, I got about one hour of sleep that night at most. And then we, we headed our, our um, platoon. Now we were a platoon. We were two squads before. Now we're come, we've come together, so we're a platoon. And spent the next couple of weeks doing what we were doing before, which was uh, a single file, walking through villages, uh, through rice paddies up in the, the jungles of the mountains. And we got orders after a couple of weeks, we got orders to join with, now there were about um, 30 of us. So we joined with um, 53 other Marines, making us a small company. They gave us order to, well, they gave us orders to go to the base of the Haivon Pass. They flew in helicopters to pick us up and to take us to the base of the Haivon Pass, which is about 16 miles north of Da Nang. Um, Haivon Pass was a very thick uh, jungle mountain, and it was a very steep mountain. Well, when we all got together, all 83 of us got together at the base of the mountain, we were all resupplied. And they, they brought in eight machine gunners with M60, M60s on, on tripods. There were eight of those. I mean, all the Marines had M16s, except me. I, had, I, I just had a revolver on the side of my uh, belt, 45, which I refused to use. But anyway, we were, we were resupplying um, we were given orders to go to the, the top of the mountain near Haivon Pass, where they suspected there were some NVA, North Vietnamese Army, up there. So we spent the whole day very quiet. I remember we weren't doing much talking at all because we knew we were headed for some real shit. And so by the end of the day, we had all of our, all of our supplies. I mean... I had, I don't know how many battle dressings were given to me, and I put them, stuffed them into my shirt in the front and in the back, and I had lots of pockets on my on my uh, pants, and and uh, so I, I stuffed my pockets. I I, I look like the Pillsbury Doughboy, you know. I was really puffed out with all kinds of supplies. And then the, early the next morning, before just before the sun started rising, uh, we were given orders to get in a single file and start heading up the mountain uh, as the sun was rising. It was a very steep mountain, plus it was uh, just loaded with vines and, and thick jungle material. And I was in the lead platoon, uh, so it was our job to uh, take our machetes out and whack a path for the rest of the guys. And it was so noisy, I thought, I was thinking to myself, we might as well have a megaphone and tell them we're coming, you know, because it was, it was just so noisy. So that was very concerning. And uh, 
We got up about maybe a third of the way up the mountain and we came to uh, a mountain stream, which was wonderful because it, it, it was clear enough. I mean, we could go into the stream and avoid having to whack our way through the, uh, the vines. Well, we got probably at least three quarters of the way up to the top of the mountain, near the top of the mountain. The stream ran out. And so we had to take our, our machetes again and start whacking away. And we, we didn't get very far and um, we heard a gunshot and it was near the back of the line. So we all hit the ground. And a few minutes later, we got a report that uh, the radio man in the um, squad in the rear was shot and killed. And at that point, I just felt like, um, what the heck, is there a sniper up here, way up here uh, in this thick jungle? I was, I was trying to figure out in my own mind what was going on. Well, we got orders to move on, to get up and move on. And as, just as we stood up, another gunshot rings out, but this time it's right in front of us. And I'm in the lead, you know, of the line. And um, they shot and killed the radio man in, in our platoon. Now, it like a flash going off in my mind, I realized whoever's out there is really smart. They are knocking out our communication so we can't radio for help. You know, then it got really scary because I realized how smart these NVAR. And um, so our, our platoon sergeant was getting really nervous. And so he told our squad our, or our platoon to follow him up to the top of the mountain, which we did. And then he grabbed a couple of the Marines and went down over the other side of the mountain. And they weren't down there for more than two minutes and all hell broke loose down where they went. We stayed on uh, where we were, but they were down there and all hell broke loose. And one of the guys that went down there, I saw him running back up. His blood was gushing out of his ears and he was screaming and yelling and, and screaming that the, they got the Sarge, they blew his back out. You know, he was just in real shock and trying to describe to us what was going, what went on down there. So our, our um, uh, captain came up to the front of the line and um, told us that we're going to go over the mountain down where our guys got killed. So I felt like we were walking into a trap. And, and, uh, but, you know, I was with the Marines. And the Marines go right into the line of fire. They don't run away from it. So we get over the mountain and we come to a, a, a well-worn path up there. And that's when I got really concerned that, oh my God, there must be a lot of them up there to, to make a path like that. And so we followed the path and it took us straight into their camp. 
We found out later that there were 1,500 of them. There were 83 of us and 1,500 of them. We walked into their camp, and their camp was in kind of a bowl shape, um, and it covered about an acre, maybe a little bit more than an acre. We all got into the middle of the camp, and I was thinking, shoot, if they're out there, and, and there, were, there were cliffs around us, okay? So we were in, in a bowl-shaped part of the mountain, and we were in the bottom of the bowl. We all got to the center of their camp. Our captain told um, two of the Marines to go out and scout. And in the meantime, we were all huddled together um, down there in that bowl. And I was really getting pissed at our captain for letting us all bunch together like this. Um, so I was really concerned that if they open fire on us, they're going to get all of us, you know. And uh, But anyway, the two scouts came back about 10 minutes later. They had found an underground um, hospital with wounded North Vietnamese on cots. They had also found a couple of uh, underground chow halls. So, again, it's, it's looking like there, there are a lot of NVA up there. And so the captain then told the machine gunners to create a perimeter um, on the kind of on the outskirt of their, their camp, right on the inside of the outskirt of the camp to form a perimeter equidistant apart. And then all the rest of the Marines would fill in the space between the machine gunners. And everything was going fine. Everybody was in place. Now, us corpsmen, um, I was, I was um, near a large, a huge tree with these huge roots. And I was thinking, if all hell breaks loose, I can jump in between the roots of the trees. And so we're all waiting. It's starting to get dark. And then that's when all 1,500 of them opened up on us. And the, the whole bowl that we were in filled up with dust, tracers going every direction. The, the sound was, I really, truly thought my skull was just going to explode with the, with the sound of all those machine guns and grenades and rockets going off at the same time. Well, that lasted for about 10 minutes. And it was amazing because it didn't just, the noise didn't slowly slow down. It all of a sudden, everybody stopped shooting. So it went from this insane um, sound, and then uh, we could hear the screaming wounded Marines. So I came out of, from between the roots. It was starting to get a little bit darker now. And I came out from the roots and was uh, crawling along the ground, heading towards the moaning and the screaming. And I saw uh, a Marine who was sitting up against a boulder, uh, flailing his arms and legs like he was being swarmed by bees. And... As I got closer to him, there was something white hanging on his face. 
And when I got close enough, I saw that he had been shot through the top of the head and split his skull open and his brain fell out over his face. Now, here's my second patient and his brain brain is hanging over his face. And I I know that he can't, he's not going to live, but he's still, you know, making sound. And so I, I, I put battle dressings over his whole head and um, then, well, I had, I had, I had my legs wrapped around him so he couldn't, so he wouldn't be, you know, grabbing. And when I let go of him with my legs, then he just he right away pulled all the battle dressings off his, that I'd put on. And so then I yelled out for some help. Um, and a Marine came over and I asked him to hold him down. Uh, while I put battle dressings over his head again. Now, this, at the time, I didn't know I was going into shock. But in hindsight, I realized that's what was happening to me. When I was done working on him, it was, once again, it was pitch black, couldn't see your hand in front of your face, all the screaming going on around me. Um, I... I lost all my hearing. Um, I couldn't move. I was laying next to him, but I couldn't move. And all the screaming just disappeared. I, my, I shut down. My senses shut down. And I didn't wake up from that for... I don't know how many hours, maybe six, seven hours. And when I woke up, when I came out of it, uh, very slowly, I could hear moaning. There wasn't any more screaming, but there was, there was moaning out there. And I knew that if I was to start crawling around in the pitch black, looking for wounded, that everyone was on hair trigger and it would, it, it would have been suicide. That's the way I felt. So I crawled in between, I, I felt my way to a big tree and crawled in between some roots and fell asleep. And it was probably an hour later that I woke up and the sun was just barely starting to come up and I could see kind of the outline of the big boulders and the huge trees. And about 15 minutes later, when it got a little bit brighter, they opened up on us again. And right away, when, when, when the shooting stopped again, right away, um, Harry and I went off to try to find the wounded Harry went one way and I went another way. And it, it was maybe 15 seconds later that there was a lot of machine gun fire behind me where um, Harry had gone. So I, then I hear a Marine say, they got Harry, they got Harry. And I turn around and I see Harry laying on a um, spread eagle on his back, laying on a boulder. Um, 
He wasn't moving at all. So I scrambled over to him and uh, right away was feeling for a pulse. And while I was feeling for the pulse, uh, I could see the bullet hole that went straight through his chest or from one side to the other, straight through his heart. And he had no pulse. Harry was dead. He was gone. And I remember so distinctly that at that point, I was numb before, but now I was, I was just so numb. Uh, but Harry was trying to get to a guy, another Marine who his arm was blown off at his upper uh, arm, uh, his arm was blown off. And of course his artery was, was going all over the place. So I, had, I knew I had to get around Harry, his body to get to this other Marine. So I started up around Harry's feet and I started receiving um, machine gun fire slamming in the ground in front of me. So I turned around and started heading around Harry's um, head. And I must have needed to get up on my knees or something to get over some rocks. And that's when I got hit. And when I got hit, it felt like I was hit by a cement truck. I had no idea where I had been hit. It was like just being hit all over. And it sent me rolling head over heels um, down that part of the mountain. And I was able to stop myself somehow. And when I stopped, I knew I was right out in the open. Now they were going to, um, you know, shoot me again. And I was hoping they would get a nice clean shot through my head. I wanted, I wanted out of this hell. And that seemed to be the only way to get out of it is for somebody to, to kill me. And so I laid there waiting. Uh, and the way I was bleeding, I was, I was pretty darn sure that my femoral artery had been broken. I was shot in the upper right of, it was like uh, two inches to the right of my groin where the AK-47 round went into me. And so the way I was bleeding, I thought my femoral artery was broken and I would bleed out in an hour. So I would be done with this whole thing in an hour. Well, and I, and I certainly didn't expect any Marine to crawl out in the open to go come and get me. Um, so about half an hour later, one of the Marines, I saw him coming down. He was crawling down to get me. And I thought, no, you're just, you're going to get it too. Um, and I'm going to bleed to death anyway. You know, I mean, the whole thing was like being in, in this insane asylum. And, but he made it all the way down to me grabbed my wrist and slowly started pulling me back up to the center of the perimeter. Once he got me up to the center of the perimeter, a couple of other Marines came over uh, with rocks and piled rocks all around me to protect me from the gunfire that was going to be ahead of us. So I spent the next five days in this little cocoon of rocks um, watching, I mean, they didn't cover it, you know, it was just like 18 inches high around me. And for the next five days uh, of laying there, well, they tried to get two medevac choppers 
to us, but the, the canopy was too thick. They couldn't land. And the North Vietnamese just blew them out of the air, uh, which really pissed me off. I thought, well, how, could, how could they be so stupid to send in two medevac choppers that couldn't land and just hover up there when there were all these NVA that I knew were going to blow them out of the air, which they did. But it was just added to the insanity. Then finally, the the um, commander of the whoever was the commander of the helicopter um, squadron or whatever you call them uh, radioed our captain and said, "We're not making any more rescue attempts until you can blow out enough trees uh, that we can land." And so that's that's what they did for the next five days. The engineers took plastic explosives and and uh, placed them around the base of these large trees and they were getting shot at by the way while they were um you know placing the plastic explosives so i just i just laid there for those five days uh waiting for one of the trees that gets blown up to land on me and uh kill me but i also realized going back a few steps that I, my femoral artery wasn't broken and that I wasn't going to bleed to death. And an overwhelming sense of ecstasy came over me. When I realized I was not going to bleed to death, I, I got the sense of ecstasy that absolute, absolutely everything is going to be fine. I've never had any feeling close to that in my lifetime. And then five days later, the enough trees were blown up and, and um, the medevac uh, choppers, they still weren't able to land, but they could hover like six, seven feet off the ground. And they, they picked me up and six other wounded and put us in the first helicopter uh, to take us to a field hospital. We found out later when we were at the hospital that they had uh, tried flying in a Chinook um, and, you know, Chinooks are a whole lot bigger than a, a, a small um, a small helicopter that I flew out in. It. Anyway, um, the Chinook, one of the blades hit one of the trees and it flipped over and uh, killed the co-pilot and uh, um, just injured all the injured that were on the, on the, on the helicopter. Mark, <laughs> let me just, uh, just remind our... Our audience, well, we're speaking with former Navy Corpsman Mark Foreman, and he's explaining what would really be his life-changing experience as a, a Marine, a, a Navy Corpsman. But uh, I just want to ask you a question quickly so our audience understands this. When you say that you're getting numb, we're not talking about physically numb. No. We're talking about mentally, emotionally numb, just to deal with uh, what's going on around you. Uh, yeah. And you're also, again... 20-year-old Navy uh, corpsman in the jungle, are you detaching yourself from any other reality outside of what's exactly around you? I mean, are you just disconnected from the rest of the world because you're dealing with the screaming, the yelling, the moaning, your own wounds, what's going on? It was an overload for all of my senses. It was, it was too extreme for my brain to know what to do with other than, you know, when I did try to get to the, the guy whose arm was blown off, 
I mean, I was still functional in that way, but emotionally, I was totally shut down. I was an organism of some sort, but I had no human emotions anymore. And, and for this five days that you're laying there wounded and the Marines, what, what an incredible story that the Marines would be piling rocks around you to keep you from the snipers. Keep you Isn't safe. it? It is an, it, a remarkable story. They were risking their lives to, to protect them. me. Right. Yeah. But are, yeah. are you, during these five days, drinking any water? Are you eating any uh, The Marines, would, they, they, would, they would bring, they tried to bring me a canteen um, every day. But sometimes they would get were getting shot at, and it was just too risky. But they tried to get me a canteen every day, which is not much water, especially when you've lost a lot of blood. Absolutely. So now you're you've been um, medically evacuated from the field from from the battle, and you get down to um, down to a yeah. aid station. And, and what do you eventually find out were the results of what had actually happened on top of the hill the very first day? The first day, that first evening, when they opened up on us, we lost 70% either to being killed or wounded. 70% in the first 10 minutes. And then the next morning, we lost another 10%. There were, there were only 20 of, of our Marines out of 83 that were able to walk out of there when it was all done. When they got me to the field hospital, they got me off the helicopter right away. They tried getting needles in me all over the place. My, my whole circulatory system had shut down. Uh, they had to put an IV in my carotid artery. Then they rushed me into the uh, field hospital. You know, they gave me five spinals. They could not give me a general anesthetic. Uh, that would have killed me because I was too weak to, to be put completely under. And so they gave me five spinals before I felt nothing from the waist down. And then they started chopping away at my hip. And I could hear them, you know, dropping bone and metal fragments and that into this um, container they had. Uh, I was conscious the whole time that they were operating on me. And, uh, but then I, I, I went unconscious for two days and when i woke up two days later i was in a universe of pain i mean it was just unbelievable how much pain there was so of course i rang the nurse and she came running over with with a nice injection of morphine and before i knew it i was floating above my bed and i was feeling no pain and what a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful feeling that was. To, I was able to escape the pain. Every three hours around the clock, they were giving me shots of morphine. After about a week and a half, I was asking for more. It wasn't doing the trick. And then after three weeks, I, they could have given me a gallon and it wouldn't have done any good. I'd become so addicted to, to the morphine and the more you take, the more you need until it gets to a point where it's either commit suicide with the morphine or bear the pain. Well, I wanted to, I wanted to kill myself that night, the day that the doctor told me that I could have no more morphine and the pain just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And, and um, I was looking around 
you know, I couldn't get out of bed, but I was looking around for a, a pencil, uh, something sharp that I could stick right in, you know, real, I mean, I had it planned out, uh, but there were no pencils, no, you know, nothing. So I rang the nurse, she came over and I said, I'm going absolutely stark raving mad. I don't know what to do. Do I talk to somebody? What, 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 what can, what can you do? And, um, she said, I will contact somebody to, to come and talk to you. So it wasn't until that next morning that a, uh, a young male social worker came over to my bedside. I was in this universe of pain and he sat down next to me and said, tell me about your family. And I thought, tell, tell you about my family. Cause I, I had, I had locked my family because they represented love and emotion, you know, attachment. And, and when you're in, in a war zone, you detach yourself. So I, I was, he was asking me a question, a beautiful question. Tell me about your family. And I thought, okay. I wanted to say, well, my mother, I couldn't even get the word mother out of my mouth. And all this love came flooding in. And I started crying that it's such a deep, deep guttural crying. And I was so embarrassed. Um, I pulled the sheets up over my head because I could not stop crying. And I, could, I didn't stop crying for a good hour. And when I finally stopped crying, I pulled the sheet down and there he's still sitting next to my bed. And he said, okay, tell me more about your family. And I'm going to start crying right now. Um, when I started visualizing my father and my twin sister and my older brother and my older sister, it just came flooding in again. All that love came flooding in again. And I started crying uncontrollably and had to pull the sheets up over me again. Um, it was an incredible experience. I'd never had anything like this happen to me in my life. But you know, in hindsight, it was this young social worker knew just what to ask in order for me to allow myself to feel again. I mean, other than pain, other than, you know, physical pain, to feel anything emotionally as a human being. And even though I was in this horrible pain, I had connected with the love of my parents and my siblings. And now life became worth living to see them again. And I knew I was going to be uh, flown to Bethesda Naval Hospital in another week. And that my parents and my family would come and we'd be able to be together again. But that emotional side of me, I, I didn't. I didn't realize I had turned it off. Um, but it would, took that experience to realize that I had let go of some of the most important things in human life, which is love. And and I was getting it back. And love was what gave me hope for the future. 
Mark, as you know, I'm an infantry soldier, and you're going to make me cry. So, <laughs> uh, but I know I also know your story, and we've heard this before, and it's a it's a remarkable story. And there is one point before the psychologist actually arrives bedside for you, where you spot the telephone cord or a cord for the call button. Uh, and uh, you were so desperate to end the pain in your life to to take your own life. Uh, tell us what you did with that telephone cord. Well, after when I, I looked all over my bedstand for a pencil, you know, and found out I can't end my life that way. And then I thought, oh, there's the call cord. I'm going to wrap it around my throat and just, you know, and I'll never forget as I'm just pulling away as hard as I can. I knew enough that I was going to just pass out and I'd wake up in this hell again, you know? So that's when I, I gave up, called the nurse and explained to her that I'm going stark raving mad. What do you do? And uh, they couldn't, they couldn't give me anything that would take away the pain. Did they take away the call cord? <laughs> no, 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 no. But, but, but that's how desperate you get. I mean, that's how severe oh. the pain was. That's where you needed to get away from whatever you were feeling. But now you've reacquainted yourself with this whole sensation or this, this feeling of love. And you're going to be now leaving South Vietnam for Bethesda, Maryland. And what we would like to do, if, um, if I could ask you, invite you to come back, because what happens to you when you get to back to the United States, back into be a long, long time of therapy and a long, long time in a, in a full body cast, if we could invite you to come back, because what you would achieve over the next decades in healing yourself uh, without uh, the the medications and the the self-inflicted therapy, I would say, not self-inflicted, but self, self-found therapy, were just absolutely remarkable. You've got an incredible amount of education to share with uh, with us and with, with with the listeners, and certainly with anyone who is struggling with their transition from the military life into civilian life and cultures. Well, I, I very much look forward to sharing what I've learned over the last five decades about healing and... Uh, yes, because it's very, very important to you. You've been through this extraordinary experience on the battlefield. 80% of your your comrades uh, killed or wounded within within it, really a day and a half and, and surviving that and coming home um, and, and reestablishing that connection with something that was really, uh, I suppose a lot of us would say, the answer to a lot of the trauma, that, that numbing, emotional numbing, and that was to find forgiveness and love. Uh, but how you did it uh, took a long time. It's hard work, but yet it, it paid off. And we really, really look forward to you coming back and sharing that educational experience with us. Uh, so you agree to do that, Mark? Looking forward to it. Okay. Yes, I am. Thank you. Sure. We appreciate it. Thank you. And we will see you on episode two. Stigma Free Vet Zone. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. 
Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us and please tune in again.